everyone, and welcome to this special summer episode of Ingenious You. I am Melissa Morris Olson, and one of my great privileges as host of Ingenious You is the opportunity I've had to have conversations with some of higher education's most creative and impressive thinkers and doers. I have been especially inspired by my conversations with women leaders who are pioneering new ways of thinking and leading. These women are bold, they are wise, and they are changing higher education for the better. In this special episode, we're pleased to share highlights of these conversations with leaders who are courageous, compelling, and candid about the challenges they have faced, as well as the opportunities and the blessings they have found in their leadership roles. Elsa, you have enjoyed a remarkably long tenure as far as college presidencies go. What have you learned along the way, and how do you make sense of the success that you've had? I, I, I thought, you know, I'd probably be fired in two or three years, and, and, uh, and uh, here I am with a long tenure. As you said, this was a rough summer with the pandemic, I must say. I never expected that. But I think that the... Um, one of the advantages that I had was that I was a faculty member. And so when I came to Eastern and my faculty started to complain to Kvetch, as I say, about the 4-4 teaching load, about having to do research for tenure and promotion, about, you know, just all the obligations that they had, I just looked at them and I agreed with them. So they thought, I think they thought that I was going to argue, well, it's not that bad or, you know, how are we going and I said, I, that's what I did. I said, I got tenured and promoted under these same conditions. So I fully understand I raised children. It was hard. And I remember being tired and, and, and working so hard. So my first relationship with the faculty was a positive one. Mm-hmm. It wasn't one of my disagreeing with them over the workload. I just couldn't change it. It was, it, it was the way it was because that's part of the contract. But I, I, I fully understood. And I think empathy, understanding, showing that is really important as a president, that when people complain, kvetch, that you listen and you, you try to get to the bottom of the message. And not you can't always fix it, but just the fact that you acknowledge that, 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 they're, you know, that they're facing challenges and demands that, that you understand, I think is really, really important. And I will tell you that, that um, in, in many cases, as a president, sometimes you have to hear what you don't want to hear. And um, when I, I surrounded myself with very intelligent people, Melissa, people who compliment me. So in my early 40s, I sat down, I remember one day, and listed all my strengths and then listed what I thought were weaknesses. And, and to this day, I think about my weaknesses when I'm hiring. And so I try to complement my team with people that are very different from me in terms of the way they have anal- the way they analyze a problem, the way they their their worldview, the their experiences, many things go into into the way that they think and their cognitive skills have been developed. And so what I have learned as a president is when I have a problem and it just happened this week. I have a problem and I 
took it to three people on the team. One person said, well, just don't do it. Another person was more neutral. And the other person said, why shouldn't you do it? And, and I smiled and I said, this is wonderful because I got three different opinions. And none of them, you know, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but it was good that I could hear from people who were thinking and their analytical skills were very different from mine and they came to different conclusions. And so I think presidents, sometimes we don't like to hear what we don't want to hear. And so you surround yourself with yes people, what I call yes people. My people, you know, sometimes I get mad because they're not afraid <laughs> to tell me that I'm wrong. <laughs> but, but uh but uh, for the most part, they're not afraid to say, I disagree with you. And I, and I think that's a healthy situation for a president to give that license, that, that freedom to your staff to disagree with you. And, and, and you either laugh about it or, you know, you, you get over it after you disagree. What I will say, however, though, at the end of the day, you're the president, you have to make the decision. So you could take in all the information you want, but you're going to, you're going to get fired if it goes wrong. So you have to, you have to be willing to to take in the information, but then decide and it, it you know what you want to do and what the move is going to be based on the best intelligence you have at that moment in time. It, it, you can't just freeze because you're getting diverse opinions. You have been described as a transformational and highly positive leader. Where do you find your inspiration? Well, I always say that uh, I am anchored in a great family situation. I have a, a loving husband. I have children and everybody, you know, everybody's healthy at the moment and working and uh, a loving family. So my strength comes from um, from having a good home life. So in my moments of despair, I have people uh, my family, members of my family, I can talk to. I have good friends that I can talk to privately because I can't always talk to people at Eastern about what I'm feeling or thinking. And so I think part of, uh, of being an effective leader is having a safe place for yourself where you can feel that you can talk about things in an open way and be honest and direct with people who love you and who will tell you the truth. And so I think that that has really helped my leadership uh, uh, as a president that that in my moments, as I call them, of despair or in my moments of real doubt about myself, I'm able to turn to people who either agree or disagree. But but even if they 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 see that I am doing something that's maybe not the best path, they'll they'll gently tell me how to what they think. And then I'm able to 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 think more deeply about what I'm doing. And I think that that's really important for pre college presidents to have that because there will always be moments where you're going to doubt yourself. If you're human, I mean, you, you, you know, you think I'm going to do this and people who don't doubt themselves and think they're always right get into trouble. President Hinton, how did you find your way into a career in higher education and eventually into a college presidency? As I look back, um, I began to try to understand the red thread, what connected these various career experiences and what led me into higher ed. And what I realized was that I was compelled more by the desire to create and support educational equity than by a single title or single industry. I just want young people to be able to get an education. 
And so when I was introduced to higher education, my first job was half-time faculty, half-time multicultural um, student center director at Misericordia University. And I fell in love with higher ed in that role. I was teaching, so I was a part of a liberal arts community, but I was also able to play a role in supporting educational equity for students. And I just loved it. And it was in that space that I began to understand the incredible role higher ed plays when at its best, it not only provides access, but support for all students to be successful. And I had the privilege of working for a couple of college presidents who chose to nurture my um, career and mentor me. And I began to realize that the sector really needed to hear the voices of women with women making up, you know, fewer than a third of college presidents and women of color um, being even rarer. So only about 5% of college presidents are women of color. And I thought, well, maybe I need to step up and do this hard work so that I could create educational equity, which is again, my ultimate mission. Well, and you gave a powerfully compelling TEDx talk in 2018 entitled Leading from the Margins. Uh, you conclude this talk by saying that your calling is based in the margins and that you dwell by choice in marginal spaces. Can you tell us a little bit more about what that means? Yeah, you know, my mission of educational equity, of, of striving to help create that and make it a reality for students really comes out of my own experience having grown up in poverty, having grown up a young woman of color in the South in the 70s and 80s. Um, and for a long time, I thought the goal was to be in the center, to change myself and my experience and my ways so that I would be accepted in the center. Um, and what I realized is that I actually don't want to be in that center. I want to, I don't want to be like everyone else. I don't want to lead like everyone else that I come from a set of experiences that give me and, and those who come from similar experiences a unique skill set. And I realized that I want to embrace that. And until I embraced where I come from and who I am, how could I meaningfully or with authenticity help young people embrace where they're from and who they are so that they could then work um, into having their very best lives. So what that statement really means is um, I embrace all of the experiences that shaped me. I embrace my racial identity. I embrace um, the poverty that I come from as having shaped how I lead today. And I have a level of choice now of which spaces I want to dwell in, which spaces compel my time and attention and I still cling to those spaces that nurtured me, to those communities that, um, that want an opportunity for education, those communities where parents work hard all day like my mom did 
and who tell their kids education is your, you know, is your only way out. As my mom told me, I want to be in those spaces. I, I no longer want to be in that center that so many leadership development theories tell you you should strive for. I want to get to that center, let the center know that there's a whole world of people out there on the margins, invite them to journey with us, invite people on the margins to journey in the center. But I just don't aspire towards being like everyone else. Yeah, you know, Melissa, you'll recall when we were first chatting, I, I kind of chuckled when we were talking about my title. Um, and because I never, I didn't aspire to be a college president. Um, the title is lovely. It, it connotes a lot about what I do each day, I guess. But that's not what drew me to this work. The, the mission, the work itself drew me to it. And so I wander about campus and I'm, you know, laughing with students or faculty or, or staff and administrative colleagues. Um, and I will sometimes forget that I am the president, right? I, I will say that was a hard part of even putting my hat in the ring for presidencies. Not only do I not see myself, did I not see myself in that role? I'm also an introvert. And so, um, so how do I make that work? Well, I try to view my work as journeying with other individuals who share my commitment to the mission of the institution I'm serving. So what I mean by that is I don't think about my work as being on center stage. I think about my work as I'm a partner to Betsy. I'm a partner to Xi'an. I'm a partner to Carrie. I'm a partner to Sim. I'm a partner to um, Zahen. So those are um, colleagues and students and I try to view my work on that individual relationship. So my goal is to connect with individuals and build relationships. I, I think people would say I'm a relational leader and it's through those individual relationships and individual connections that I try to serve the institutional goals. So I still don't view myself as someone on center stage. I view myself as connected to a lot of people in this community. We're connected intellectually, but even more, our hearts are connected, our intentions are connected. And because of those connections, I get to help the community achieve its grandest aspirations. So I, I, don't, um, I don't view myself as the center stage leader. Uh, and, and I hope my community views me as a partner on this journey with them. Do you have any guidance or insights for other leaders, particularly emerging leaders who may also see themselves in the margins and who may want to lead from the margins? What I would say for those other leaders from the margins is that even though you may not see yourself as represented as you should, as we should see um, ourselves represented, trust yourself, trust your experience and own your space. Believe in your mission. You know what your mission is. 
you should believe in it. You should take it out and look at it and decide what remains relevant and what doesn't. But believe in your mission. Commit yourself to that mission and what matters for you. Um, being from the margins, and, and you could be from the margins for a host of reasons. It could be because um, of your sexual identity, your sexual orientation or gender identity. It could be because of an ability or disability. It could be race. It could be income. It could be any number of things. But whatever it is, it's not something to apologize for, and it's not a deficit. It's a part of who you are. And you have to embrace all of who you are if you're going to be a leader. And so my advice is to spend that time owning and caring for and nurturing who you are. I said to a group of students last night, you know, I was talking about leadership. It was a leadership honor society induction. And I was talking about leadership and leading from the heart and the, and the importance of being both courageous and vulnerable and why that matters. But I also said to the students, and oftentimes I think we talk to ourselves through our speeches, <laughs> but I told them that you can't effectively lead if you're not faithful to your own self and your own experiences. That if you try to compartmentalize your vulnerability from your courage, your truth from your work, your public life from your private life, then it's unlikely your leadership will be very successful. That you must know who you are, find comfort in your truth, and be willing to grow and evolve. And I told them, you have to be vulnerable to yourself and your truth and find strength in that space. And that's what I want for emerging leaders for them to honor and nurture their vulnerability and their courage, to honor and nurture their truth, and to find strength in that. Carol, what's the backstory for how you arrived as president of Baypath in the mid-1990s? Had you been thinking about a presidency? Was a, was a college presidency on your radar prior to that? And I'm curious what you were thinking when you first arrived on campus? It was never on the radar. Uh, once I entered the field of student life and student affairs and not being a faculty member, uh, when I was, this is now four decades ago, when I was a young professional, pretty much the only path to a presidency was through being a faculty member and a dean and a provost. Mm -hmm. That was not my trajectory. My trajectory was on the student life side. So that really never crossed my mind. Um, I was fortunate enough through my career to have great mentorship, uh, both men and women. And when I arrived at Simmons College as a young professional in my early 30s, I was immediately mentored by one of the vice presidents who made a, a major impact on my career. And that's when I got into more of the administration. I was promoted to an associate dean of the college where I had uh, relationships with the faculty and bridged and served as a liaison between the dean's office and the faculty on many projects at the university. 
And when I became the VP for administration at Simmons, and it was a circuitous route to get there uh, with moves to Washington for my husband's career and then back to Boston. Uh, at, in that position as VP for administration, again, the president there gave me many opportunities to work on the budget and I oversaw the budget as well as worked in the human resources office, the advancement office, worked with the deans in strategy and planning. And he was the one who really encouraged me to think about it, even though I still was suggesting to myself it was not a pathway. But he really suggested that it could be possible. And then his successor was very instrumental in encouraging that as well. When I arrived and found an undergraduate institution of all women like Simmons, but only 450, the only thing I saw was potential. I had mm -hmm. great interviews with the search committee. I saw the passion and the commitment of the faculty and the staff and the students who interviewed me. And I had a sense they were eager uh, for change. They were eager for a future. And I also maybe sensed, but just a little, fear. Because with 450 students, I'm sure they were thinking, you know, what is this new president thinking and where are we headed? But I, I basically saw incredible potential. And it's a lesson, I think, for anyone going into any new job, you know, enter it with awe and excitement mm -hmm. and what you can see instead of all the challenges you're going to have. And if you start with that positive mindset, I think it leads you to keeping that positive mindset no matter how many challenges uh, throughout, throughout your tenure at any institution. Mm, boy, well, and obviously that mindset set the stage for an incredible trajectory, um, both for you and for the institution. And as you look back now over the past 25 years, I'm, I'm curious how you account for the success that the institution has had, especially considering um, it hasn't all been a straight line upward. You know, you've been president during um, some periods where the economy has been up and down, um, nothing like the current moment, you know, with the pandemic, but you have faced your share of challenges. And so I'm, I'm curious uh, what, how you account for Bay Pass success and what lessons might be drawn from, from your experience? Well, I think the, the one I just ended with uh, probably helped me tremendously. And that is having a positive mindset about mm -hmm. planning and thinking about a future. But when I am asked about the success of APATH, I always say it was the executive team that I hired and the incredibly um, nimble faculty and staff that allowed for the transformation of Bay Path University. And the other element that I think is absolutely critical uh, to the success of Bay Path has been the strong board that we have had and their willingness to risk. And when I suggest risk, you mentioned all the key points along the way. And when we had reached one of the lowest points in 2001 during the recession and right after September 11th, another recession in 2008, there were many times when even the executive staff of, of the university were thinking, should we go co-ed? Um, 
you know, maybe we should just be a graduate school. I mean, there were so many moments when the mission of an all women's institution was questioned. And when I look back now and realize that today, 60% plus of all college students are women, if we had made that decision, I don't know where we would be. We retained our, our focus on our mission. We always had plans and financial plans that paralleled them, but it was the execution of the team and the faculty and staff that I really credit the success of BayPath. You are now in your seventh year as president at Roxbury Community College, and you have had a very successful tenure. What have you learned that you can share from your experience about those things that have helped to facilitate your success? Um, perhaps especially for others who may be thinking about uh, pursuing senior level leadership roles and maybe even a presidency. Yeah, that is, that's an interesting question because, you know, you always stay longer than you anticipate staying. I, I wouldn't have thought that I would have been here seven years now. Mm -hmm. um, but I think one of the things that, that's helped me is that at some point, and this is my second presidency, so that after the first one, um, I was, um, I wasn't sure that I would want to be president again. And um, I, I actually took a job as a vice president after having been president. And people thought, why would you do that? Mm. Well, it, for me, um, the thing that sustains me is that I'm not necessarily that keen about being president. Being president in and of itself has really no meaning to me. The thing I really aspire to do is, just as I said in the beginning of my career, I just really want to be able to help people and I want to be effective in that work. And um, I found that actually with each promotion, there would come a point where I'd say, well, you know what, I could do that job. And, um, and so I feel very blessed to be able to do the work and I feel like I'm really good at it. It's that confidence that sustains me and really allows me to operate in a space where I don't have to be concerned about my career aspirations. I can really just focus on getting the work done. And that's really the thing that, that makes a difference to me. Um, I think that I've, I've watched people sometimes that say, I want to be president. And they can get so wound up in, in being president that they don't feel comfortable making the hard decisions that we all have to make. You have to be willing to almost live and die by the decisions that you make. And especially as you talk about COVID, mm -hmm. you, you know that literally people's their life and their health is in your hands. And so you can't be so concerned about self um, that you, you can't make a good decision for other people. I think that it's important that we as individuals find work that is meaningful rather than aspire to a position. You've mm -hmm. got to make sure that you feel good and, and principled about that work. And if you do, it's not really work. It's really 
it's a joy to be able to, um, you know, share that gift that you have with other people. Mm. So, I, I mean, I think that's just the way that I've always looked at it, but it certainly has evolved in terms of, you know, kind of getting where I am now. And I will tell you that one of the things that got me there was that my first presidency, I lost the job. Um, and I'd never been, you know, fired or dismissed from a position before. And um, it, it, it took me in a, a, a long time to kind of process that. But where I eventually got was that you, you can't be concerned about losing a job. That, that can't be your driver. Um, it has to be, uh, you have to be willing to lose that job in order to be able to make whatever decisions, the hard decisions that you have to make. As a woman of color, how have your lived experiences and perspectives informed the way in which you lead? You know, um, the, the interesting thing about being um, whoever you are in, in your package, you don't necessarily think about the effect of it um, because you just live it every day. Mm. But, but being um, a female, um, you know, actually, and I'll, I'll go back to the, the situation with my, the, the reason that I lost my first presidency was partly because I had a male boss. He asked me to do some things that I didn't think were principled, you know, within my principle. And um, I just didn't feel ethically that that was what I could do. And, um, and so that's how I ended up eventually um, kind of losing that position. And um, it hadn't occurred to me um, too much uh, before that point about the differences that in treatment that I might receive as a female employee versus a male. And um, I think it was the very act of defiance as a woman that, um, this individual really could not really deal with. Um, and I don't know that kind of going into it, I would have done anything differently um, or that there's anything that could be done in, in retrospect because, you know, people make different decisions because of your gender or because of your race. It's, it's something that you're conscious of. And, and I think that that's the advice that I would, um, you know, give to others, especially in this time of unrest, is that um, you really do have to engage in some self-reflection um, and understanding. Um, and I think that sometimes it helps you to feel better about things that have happened to you mm. um, that explain some, some behaviors that you knew in your heart weren't right but you couldn't quite figure out, you know, why it was happening. And I think that, that that can apply on a larger basis. If we can really be open enough to understand other people's experiences, it, it just enriches your ability to do your job. Mm. Once you, you start to kind of step outside of first understanding yourself, which I think is really important, but secondly then, trying to understand other people's stories that are not your own, I think is the key to us as a, as a country or as, um, 
you know, individual colleges um, in understanding what we need to do to make our programs more inclusive or, um, you know, where we're not developing policies that are going to, um, you know, hurt others. It's, it's, it's certainly hard to describe, but I think it's possible by developing that sense of empathy of other people and, and, and understanding their stories and listening, you know, to what people are saying and, and doing the hard work to think about it, I think is what's necessary to get us, you know, beyond this. Mm. So much of your work has focused on supporting equity and inclusion, including gender issues. How have you brought these commitments into your work as president? Yeah, so um, I know we were talking a little bit before about my recent writings around democracy and citizenship. Um, and I'm originally from Haiti. I came to the U.S. when I was 12. And I grew up in a country that was very politically unstable, where we had coup d'etat after coup d'etat um, when I was a child, a lot of political violence. And I saw what it's like to be uh, to live in a in a democracy that wasn't quite a democracy in practice. And so some of the things that have been happening uh, most recently have really spoken to the core of uh, who I am. And but it's but, but they are also not new because I grew up with those values. But one of the things so some of what we are seeing right now and for me as a leader is a need for me to be even bolder, even more audacious in how we approach the issues of diversity, equity and inclusion and also defining those in broad terms, um, not just in terms of race and ethnicity, but also in terms of rural, um, because some of what we are seeing right now is um, alienation of poor, rural, and primarily white communities. Um, and we're also seeing the ways that our strong legacy and our history and our contemporary practices that are fueling um, structural racism and inequities are now coming to bite us. And as our country is becoming more plural, um, we will have these tensions remain and they might manifest themselves in very violent ways if we're not um, bold enough, courageous enough to tackle them and to also provide people with opportunities, with education to be able to change their plight. I think when people feel that they have no hope, um, they are willing to destroy um, things. They are willing to, to do things that they would normally do if they had a sense um, of hope about their future. Um, and as you know, I'm very committed to women's issues, girls' issues. Um, those are very near and dear to my heart. Um, I have the blog um, through the University of Venus, working with Mary Churchill and um, Inside Higher Ed that I maintain, I've maintained for, gosh, I guess, um, seven, eight years now. Um, and I talk about what it's like to be a woman leader, leader, what it's like to be a black woman leader, an immigrant leader, and a mom. Um, things are hard. You know, we try to have it all. We can't always have it all. And we see biases. We see ways that we can show up that are permitted and ways that we can show up that are also um, not accepted. So uh, it, it's it's becoming more complex and being um, at the intersection of multiple um 
uh, identities um, certainly make things more complex um, and uh, calls for us to be more understanding, more empathetic, and certainly for me um, to be um, more vulnerable because I know the people who are um, supporting me and whose work I support and whom I support um, need to know what it's like for real and not just the textbook um, version of leadership. Well, well, you you have mentioned that you are a wife, a mother. We know that you are a very, very busy professional. Um, you know, another question I would imagine listeners have, particularly our women listeners, and we have more, we have, I think, 60% of our audience is women. Um, I'm sure they'd be interested in knowing your thoughts about how you balance everything and any insight you might have for other women who are interested in pursuing a significant leadership role, whether it's in higher ed or... Well, I have to say um, that there too, I'm a statistical anomaly. I have an incredibly supportive husband. I married Superman um, who allows me to do things and to shift responsibilities to him that traditionally um, the woman has. So, um, you know, he's followed my career wherever we've gone. Um, and uh, has been the primary parent in charge for the longest time. And I'm very, I'm, I'm very lucky to have that. And in addition to my partner, um, I also have a very good circle of friends, um, people on whom I can rely, people when they don't hear from me for you know an extended period of time will just show up to my house and say, where are you? You haven't replied to my text. You haven't replied to my calls. Um, it's important to have sister circles. Um, those are incredibly important and to have mentors, people on whom we can rely for advice and counsel. Um, and I have to say that I recently started uh, working with um, coach Katie Linder. Um, Katie is absolutely wonderful. I, I've always had coaches. I have um, Right now, I have two coaches. Um, I have one who is my longtime coach, who is a Google executive, um, who does coaching part-time with the people he wants, and I'm one of his hand-picked people. Um, we've become very much like friends, and he helps me think through things differently. And Katie just helps keep me on track. Um, she offers a number of different services through her platform, and she has communities um, of other leaders, men and women, primarily women, who help each other out. Um, and But I found that um, having my conversations with her and getting emails from her saying, where are you? What are you doing? What are your goals? You said you were going to do this. Where are you now? I haven't heard from you. We need to meet. And she also has some electronic tools to help us um, meet our goals, to help me meet up, meet my goals. You are retiring after a highly successful 27-year tenure as president. From the vantage point you now occupy, what do you think goes into an effective, a successful presidency, particularly given the challenges all colleges and universities now face? You know, leadership, particularly presidential leadership, is is not about you. You know, it's it's about the institution. It's about the community that you lead. It's about you know building a healthy learning environment and encouraging faculty, staff, and students to to do do their best work. 
Um, uh, and and so it you know it takes a it takes a certain um, disposition to to do it well and fairly um, over time. I you know when people ask me, I always say you know you have to be a grown up. You know you really have to recognize that even though you you have pushed through through your career to get to this point. Where where you sit in this seat, then you have to you have to put ego aside, and realize that um, you serve the institution. You are its greatest steward. You are its storyteller. Um, you are its uh, protector, and it's you know the person encouraging. But um, but you can't lose sight of the fact that. Um, the institution is about more than you. And I, and I think that's, um, you know, when you asked me early on, that's why I always say that each president has a chapter. You know, one, one of the things that is very interesting about presidential leadership is it, you know, you step into the institution for a period of time and you provide leadership direction, you, you, you love the people, you, you know, set the boundaries, you, you are the voice of the institution, and then you step out and the institution continues forward. So you steward a chapter. Um, and and as, I'm as I'm realizing myself now that I'm in my last four months, um, it doesn't really end and that's okay. You know, you you bring you bring issues and projects and opportunities to a certain juncture of stability, and then then a next president. Then you hand it off to a next president, um, and um, and and that's you know that's how it should be. You have been a, a mentor, uh, a formal mentor as well as an informal mentor to many aspiring presidents. What do you tell them about the job and how do you advise them as they are planning for their own presidencies? It is very important to shop the fit if you were looking to lead an institution. Because um, again, as I said earlier, it, it, it is an all-in lifestyle. And so if you don't if you don't find joy and satisfaction in, in the lifestyle and in the meaningful moments, you, you don't have the resilience to do the job over time. And, um, and I always encourage um, aspiring presidents to, to really think through what is important to you because when the going gets tough, <laughs> and it and it always does in a presidency, particularly in a, in a long one like I've had, you know, you you ebb and flow with the institution. You want to be able to drill down and understand absolutely why you do what you do, so that 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 carries you through those dark moments, you know, after, after you've collaborated with everybody and consulted, and then you're sitting alone with that very difficult decision, which you know will satisfy some and horrify others. <laughs> um, 
you you have to know what your context is, um, what drives um, your decision, and what is ultimately most meaningful for you. you know? Now that doesn't mean that you don't you don't also have to you know shop the institution. You know, and I and I will always talk with um, aspiring presidents about you know what to look for in a budget. How do how to assess the climate of the faculty? You know, what are the indicators that it's a functioning board that knows governance and and understands your role as administration? So you know there are there are concrete factors, but but ultimately, if you're if what is meaningful for you personally aligns with the mission of the institution the likelihood that you will be able to lead with integrity over time is, is greater. And, and I, I know that from my own experience, I know that from the research, um, and, I, and I believe that deeply. Um, and, I, and I guess the other thing I would say, and, and again, this is part of resilience, is you know a, a president, and I'm going to write an article on this at some point in the future. A president has a special relationship with hope and forgiveness. You know, you, you must be someone that always sees the glass half full, you know, always sees the opportunity beyond the obstacle. And, and you, can't, you can't hold on to grudges. You know, there, there will be moments that are painful, but, but you are always 51% responsible for moving the institution forward. Mm. Um, and, and you need to be able to differentiate between what is coming at you that is painful because of the role you happen to be in or, or without personalizing it. Mm. Um, and so that, that understanding of hope that pulls an institution forward in tough times and forgiveness that enables you to lead um, in tough times. Um, it, it's, it's, it's a maturity of understanding. People ask me all the time, you know, what, what is, what's the magic of a successful presidency? And, and without sounding flip, I will often say, you know, a significant part of it is showing up every day, being fair, being balanced, um, you know, providing um, faculty, staff, and students with, with this constant center upon which they do, can depend so that they can go about the you know, the core work of the institution, teaching and learning without being distressed by, by the administration of, of the university. So they can feel confidence in the institution. You, you may have heard this, I have a mantra, you know, and I, I share it often and I'm, I'm, I'm always flattered and I chuckle when I hear other people share it at the podium, they usually give me credit. But I call it the three C's, absorb chaos, respond calmly, and if you do that again and again, you build confidence within your organization. Mm. So absorb chaos, 
respond calmly, build confidence. Lenore, what are the most significant influences that have shaped who you are as a leader and how you lead? Uh, that's a great question. Um, and I, I think one of the things that um, I think has just been uh, an inherent part of my personality, even from being a, a young child, um, is learning from everybody I come into contact with whether good or bad, and, and quickly sifting out, you know, the, the role models that I want to follow and the ones that I don't. Um, and, you know, going, going through um, my career, just learning from everyone um, that I come into contact with. I've learned a great deal from our students, um, and I think I draw most of my inspiration from them. And as I make decisions on a daily basis, I always ask, how is this going to impact the students? That's always the first question that I ask. And if it's going to be a negative impact, then that's a less valuable solution than one that is going to have a positive impact uh, for our students. Um, they, they have such transformational stories, um, and they're the reason that we're here. And so I draw a lot of inspiration from them. But I've also had the opportunity to work with a number of higher education leaders, both here at my institution and nationally as well on the different boards that I serve in. And the, the leaders that I'm most drawn to are those that are, are looking not, not to build a career or a name for themselves, but for the people that they serve, whether it's the students, their faculty, their staff, and their institution. Um, and I think, you know, those those change makers to me are, are some of the most critically important ones. Um, and then, you know, I, I live by a very stringent moral code that lies just make things complicated. And the truth is, mm -hmm. is the most critical component. And so being above board and transparent with every decision that I make and being able to explain it and always going back to this is what's best for the students, this is what's right, this is what um, is in line with the mission and vision of the institution. Those are all the guiding principles that help me make decisions on a daily basis. You juggle many, many roles, including that of a busy, very busy professional, wife, mother, daughter, and more. How do you make it all work? So, so one of the data points that I'm not, I don't know if you're aware of, but I'm not only a mother, I'm a mother of five. And my, my children. <laughs> well, I, I didn't know that. I wasn't going to mention it. So my my children range in age from 20, uh, who's the oldest, to six years old. So uh, this year, this year I have a student in college. I have a high school senior, a student graduating from middle school and a kindergartner graduating from kindergarten. Uh, so it, it's been an interesting um, uh, home remote learning situation with all these various scenarios going on right now. Um, but I, I think for, for me, the way that I've been able to balance it is by having a network of support. And I think that that's critically important for women especially, but I think for anyone who wants to have a healthy balance between life and work, you have to have that support network. So obviously my husband is a huge support. Uh, my mother-in-law who lives across the street from us 
um, has been a huge factor in, in helping with the kids and supporting them. And my parents also live uh, near here and, and help uh, with the kids as needed. But the other um, aspect of it is that, you know, I involve the children and my husband in, in a lot of the work that I do, events that we have on campus so that they see the importance of the work that I do and why I do it. It's also easier to have that conversation and that balance and for them to be understanding when they see that it's it's not really just a job, it really is a vocation and a calling. Um, and so they're so involved in it that it's almost like they, they haven't known me as anything but uh, you know a, an integral part of this institution. Um, and I've got my the, the senior who's just graduating, she's gonna be a student here next year and, and she's excited about it because you know she's she's the reason that I started my path here as an adjunct faculty member to spend more time with her. Um, so seeing her coming here kind of brings everything full circle. And so they they understand the importance of the work that I do. And you know it, it's funny because when when I first got a smartphone uh, you know several years ago as an administrator and they would see the little blue light flashing that there was a message, they were like, oh, mom, you've, you've got a message from work. You gotta look at that. Um, they become very, very <laughs> involved in it. But but really the, the secret to it is really having that support network, whether it's family, friends, um, to, to help you um, balance that and be there for them when you can't be there. Um, that I think is, is the most important piece. And then integrating them in any way that you can into the work that you do. You've been described as having a deep and a profound commitment to women's education. I've heard you talk about this uh, yourself personally. Where does that come from and why is this important to you? This is a very personal issue for me because I have seen the results firsthand. My grandmother attended Barnard, an all women's education, mm. uh, educational institution um, back in... I'm going to say the 1920s. Uh, my mother attended an all-women's education uh, educational institution when she returned to college. My daughter attended an all-girls high school. So I know firsthand the power um, of of building a network of collaboration of thinking together about how to empower women, how to lift women up. You know, over the course of America's history, women have had different types of opportunities. You know, originally, uh, they did not have the opportunity to go to school. And then they had the opportunity to attend women's only institutions. And then they had the opportunity to attend co-educational institutions. But what we're hearing from many women is that attending a women's institution gives them the strength, it empowers them in terms of formulating their own ideas and becoming secure in their own values so that when they leave and enter the world of work, which is not always as friendly uh, to women, that they've got that foundation, they've got that basis, that they understand who they are, they've found their voice, and they're not afraid uh, to use it. And I think we're seeing this uh, in other areas as well. When you think about the national landscape, when you think about um, women who have been elected at every level 
of office from school committee to judges to uh, state legislatures to the national congress as well as to uh, vice president elect harris we see that women are using their voice and so our role our job as a women's college is to help them formulate that voice and empower them to use it Thanks so much for listening to this special summer episode of Ingenious You. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and rate it wherever you get your podcasts. And please do share with your friends and colleagues so that they too can join our community. We are now preparing for season three. And if you have suggestions for thought leaders you would like to hear from or topics you would like addressed on Ingenious, please let us know. In the meantime, check out our monthly Leading Edge Thinking in Higher Ed webinar series for more innovative thinking and conversations on all things higher ed. That's all for now. Stay healthy and be well.